Thank you, Holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, for the grace that you pour out on us, undeserved, unmerited, only because you love us. We thank you for the grace that we receive already this, this morning, and we thank you for the grace that we're about to receive through the Word of God. We pray now that you would illumine the Word of God, that you would pour out your Spirit upon the reading and preaching of your Word. Help me in my weakness and all of us in our weakness, so that we would not only hear your voice today, but that we would respond to it with all of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Hear God's word from Ruth chapter 1, verses 14 through 22. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned to Moab, from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. It's great to see all of you. I'm Corey. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's so good to be with each other on this first day of fall. Um, I want to say welcome to all of you, especially if you're visiting today. I want to give a special welcome this morning to some special guests that we have um, visiting from Tanzania. Uh, we have a group of pastors and business leaders from Tanzania who are mission partners of ours uh, together for Tanzania. Um, and this is an amazing organization that works with local leaders in Tanzania to resource pastors and educators and doctors and businessmen really to identify what are the greatest needs in the Tanzanian society to help bring renewal and shalom in that society there. So I just want to invite you guys to, to, to stand, please, just so that we can welcome you and celebrate you being here. Let's just, let's just pray, pray for them. Lord, we thank you for these pastors, um, business leaders, uh, physicians, educators, all that are working together for the transformation of the Tanzanian society. Um, and we pray for grace and mercy for them. May this time in the States be refreshing for them as they're resourced here. And we pray that you would continue to empower this organization with the power of your spirit uh, to bring renewal. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, if you have been with us at all the last couple of weeks, you'll know that we started a new series on the book of Ruth this fall. Ruth is a fascinating and I think one of the most beautiful books in the Old Testament that is sandwiched uh, between Judges and the time of the Kings. And you know, Judges, this book takes place in the time of Judges, which was one of the darkest seasons in the life of Israel. It was a time of political turmoil, ideological confusion, social division and polarization. And right there in the middle of all of that darkness, the story of Ruth happens. And so the narrator is really asking the question is, what would it mean for the people of God not to be defined and marked by all of these things that were happening in the society around them, but what would it mean for the people of God to be marked by something else? The chesed, love of God, covenant love, covenant faithfulness. And so we too live in a time of political turmoil and ideological confusion and social polarization. Has anybody noticed that these days? I don't know if you've noticed that, but so we too are asking the question, learning from this book is, how can we as a church, the people of third, how can we as a community not be defined and marked by all of the things happening around us and, and batted this way and that by the sands of the culture that are determining our life together, but how can we instead be marked by love? How can the third church family be known for its hesed, its covenant faithfulness and the way that we manifest our love for God, for neighbor, for one another? This book is teaching us what that love is like. Last week, we looked at how love suffers. It's a mark of hesed love. And this week, we're looking at the truth that this kind of love commits. It makes profound promises, costly promises. Somewhere in the Middle East, on the road between Moab and Bethlehem, three women once stopped in the middle of the road. And right there, a young foreign woman uttered some words that have become some of the most incandescent and enduring words that have inspired people for 30 centuries. And here we are, 30 centuries later, 6,000 miles away, studying the proclamation of a young foreign widow and what it teaches us about love. And so that's what Ruth shows us in this amazing promise that she makes to her mother-in-law that love commits. Love makes radical promises at personal cost to oneself. And here's, here's the theme for today. If you want to become a person who loves, and if we want to become a community who loves, then we have to learn how to make and keep costly promises. We've got to learn how to make and keep costly promises, okay? So we're going to look at three things together today. First, the importance of promises. Why are promises so vital for the social fabric of our life together? Uh, second, the problem of promises. What's so hard about making promises? And then finally, the power for promises. How do we actually make and keep costly promises, especially when they're very hard? Okay, so first let's look at the importance of promises. Let's do a quick story recap, because some of you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks. So there's a woman named Naomi. She's married to a man named Elimelech, and they go because of a famine to the foreign nation of Moab to find food and shelter. They go with their two sons, and their catastrophe strikes Naomi. First, her husband dies, 
And then a little bit later, both her sons die, leaving her impoverished and with nothing but her two foreign daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. So soon she begins to hear about the way that God has visited his people back in Bethlehem. And so she packs up all her things and she begins to make the long trek road back to her home in Bethlehem. And Orpah and and Ruth, being very devoted to their mother-in-law, begin to make the journey with her. Now, a little bit into the journey, Naomi stops. And she turns to her her daughters-in-law and she says, No, my daughters, you must not go with me. You've got to return back home. You have nothing but a bleak future ahead of you in Israel. You are two foreign women. No man will want to marry you. You will not have a family. You will not have a future. Go back home to your own tribes. But these women are committed. And they say, no, no, Naomi, we will go with you. We will stay with you. So she intensifies. She amplifies. She begins to communicate strongly just how miserable their life will be in Israel. She says, in fact, God's own curse is upon my life. Why would you want to live with a cursed woman? And at this point, Orpah gets the point. She says, okay, I get it. (laughs) Maybe I will uh, take you up on that. And so she begins, she kisses her mother-in-law, she turns to go back home. Now, before we throw Orpah under the bus, let's just be clear. The text makes no judgment of Orpah. In fact, Orpah does the right thing. She does the sensible thing. She, first of all, she obeys her elder, which was paramount in that ancient society. She listens to her mother-in-law and obeys her command. And then she returns, showing great fidelity to her own people. And so Orpah does the right thing. She does the sensible thing. It is Ruth who is the rebel. It is Ruth who does the rebellious, controversial, subversive thing. Because Ruth refuses to leave. It says she clung to her. And so Naomi knows, oh my gosh, this is going to be serious. So she says all the more, she says, Ruth, look at your sister-in-law. Turn around, turn around, look at her. See, she's walking away. Turn around, walk away, go back home. This is the seventh straight command that Naomi has given to Ruth. And then Ruth rises up. And for the first time that we hear this woman's voice in this story, she speaks and oh, what a voice it is. The first thing she does And she issues forth a command back into the face of the command of Naomi. She says, no, don't urge me to leave you again. Stop telling me to go away. I'm not going. And then she issues this amazing promise to her mother-in-law. She comprehensively commits herself to the whole life of Naomi. First she says, I will go where you go, and I will stay where you stay. Going and staying was the sign of a comprehensive life commitment. And then she says, not only that, but your people will be my people. I will abandon my own culture, my own family, and my own people, and I will commit myself now to the people of Israel and your own family. And then she says, my God will be your God. Contrary to the command of Naomi to go back to her own gods, Ruth says, nuh-uh, your God will be my God. Your Yahweh from now on will be my Yahweh. I'm with you. Now, this would be astonishing enough as it is, right? But... She could have gone with Naomi, lived a couple of decades until Naomi's death, and then returned back to her family. But Ruth, she doesn't stop there. She amps it up further. She says, not only that, but my bones will be buried with your bones. Now, burial in the ancient time was a very big deal for ancient people. You always wanted to be buried with your bones. People. Remember how Jacob made his sons swear that they would carry his bones back to his homeland? And yet Ruth says, in one final, powerful demonstration of her comprehensive commitment to her mother-in-law, says, my death will be in your land and my bones will be buried next to yours. I belong to you. 
I'm renouncing everything and committing my whole self to your life. And then in this final flourish, she pronounces a curse over herself. She says, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I ever de declare anything that would separate myself, you, from me. And with sort of probably she did this, she probably swiped her finger across her neck and she said, may I be cut if anything ever cuts you off from me. Amazing. And I need you to understand the gravity of this. Naomi just told her how miserable her life would be, right? By going with Naomi, Ruth is cutting off her future. She's giving up friends. She's giving up her family. Probably will never see them again. She will be a nameless, foreign, unprotected widow. She will have few legal rights. She most likely will never find a husband and have children. She will struggle with poverty for the rest of her life. She most likely, as a Moabite, face racial discrimination. She will be vulnerable to violence. And yet, with her eyes wide open to all of these things, she slams and bolts the door on her own future and binds herself to life with, to an old, bitter woman. Astonishing. The love, the courage. The bravery, the risk-taking, determination. You know, some people have compared Ruth to Abraham, who left everything to follow after God. But yeah, I'm telling y'all, Ruth out Abraham's Abraham. Because, you know, Abraham had a voice. Abraham had a promise. Abraham had God meet him and tell him that he would be blessed and be a blessing. Ruth got nothing, no voice, no promise, no one guaranteeing her future. And on top of all that, she is a woman in a world ruled by men. She's got nothing. And yet, at incredible cost to herself, she chooses to give up her own future in order to ensure the future of another. This is Hesed at its finest, showing us what promise-making love is all about. This is what it is, friends. A Hesed promise is committing yourself to another's good and another's future, regardless of the personal cost to yourself. That's what Hesed is, committing yourself to another's future and another's good, regardless of the cost. Years ago, I read an article by a psychiatrist named Louis Smeets, and it was very impacting on me. And in this article, he wrote this. Basically, we live in an unpredictable world with a completely unpredictable future, all of us. You have no idea how circumstances might change, how your life might change, how the world around you might change. In fact, the only certain thing, I hate to break it to you, but the only certain thing that you can count on in your life is uncertainty. And this is why we're so scared. This is why we're so anxious. This is why we store up things for ourselves and try to secure our lives against all of the potential risks that, that can fall before us. But no matter what happens, you cannot protect yourself from the unpredictability of the unformed future that lies before us. And that's what lay before Naomi. That's what lay before Ruth. But this is what Smeed said. When you make a promise, something remarkable happens. Think about this. By making a promise, you are putting a stake of certainty into the uncertain future. You are saying to another person, look, everything might change, circumstances might change, the world might change, you might change, I might change. You can count on nothing in this world, but here is what you can count on. I am the one that will be there. You're creating an island of certainty in a future of chaos. You're creating a sanctuary of trust in a jungle of unpredictability. That's what you're doing when you make a promise to someone. You're saying, if you can count on nothing else, you can count on this, I am the one who will be there. 
Now, people just don't make promises like this anymore. Really, the closest thing that we have to it in the modern world is if you ever go to a wedding and really listen to the wedding vows. Next time you go to a wedding, really listen to what the couple is saying. When I work with young couples to prepare them for marriage, what I often do is I have them sit down and we look, we actually read the marriage vows together and we study them. And I want to, I point out to them, there is nothing in these vows whatsoever about your present circumstance or your present experience. Everything in these vows is about who you are promising to be at some point in the future. So I, listen, I, Corey, take you, Sarah, to be my lawfully wedded wife, and I do promise, there's the promise, before God and these witnesses, to be your loving and faithful spouse in plenty and want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. Notice there's nothing in there about my current feelings. I take you, Sarah, because you make me feel so wonderful. There's nothing in about how we look. I take you, Sarah, because, man, you're hot, you know. There's nothing, there's nothing in, in the vows about, you know, our current life together. I take you, Sarah, because we are just so compatible and we really work well together. Now, there's nothing in the vows whatsoever about my current experience and anything about me at the moment. Everything is making a future rendezvous with myself at any point in the unknown future saying to her, I am the one who will be there. And I often say to these young couples, what do you think is going to hold you together? You think you're compatible? Great. <laughs> you're sexually and physically attracted to each other? Fantastic. You've got common hobbies? All the better. None of those things are enough. You're going to change. She's going to change. Your feelings are going to change. Your circumstances are going to change. Things might happen to you that you can have no clue, any predictability of what you might anticipate now. There will be times of pain. There will be times also of terrible suffering. There will be times of joy. There will be times of awful sorrow. What are you going to do when all the things at this moment that think you think are holding your relationship together, what are you going to do when all of those things are gone? What holds you together? And you know what the answer is? The promise. The promise. And I love what Smeeds writes. He writes, my wife has lived with at least five different men since we were married, and each of the men has been me. When I married my wife, I had hardly a smidgen of sense for what I was getting into her. How could I know how much she would change? How could I know how much I would change? Yet, the connecting link with my old self has always been the name, the name that I took back on that day, I am the one who will be with you. Now, we're talking about marriage here, but this is not just about marriage. Naomi and Ruth were not married. They were a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. And actually, the majority of people in our church, if you think about it, if you include all the young adults and the students and the children, are single. And so what I want you to hear is that this is true not just for married people. This is true for any relationship that is worth its salt. Any relationship that is, has any value hinges and depends not on the fleeting whims of emotions, but on the strong, stable, secure foundation of promises. In fact, G.K. Chesterton once wrote, on the single string of a person bound to his promise hangs everything from nuclear disarmament to a family reunion, from a successful government to a return ticket to California. Everything in our world that has any value hangs and depends on a promise. And so listen, whether you are a friend 
or a daughter, or a son, or a husband, or a wife, or a brother, or a sister, or a classmate, or a boss, or an employee, or a church member, or a member of a book club. Whatever it is, everything in our life and all of our social fabric depends on the power of people to make and keep promises. Otherwise, we are cast into a chaotic sea of unpredictability with nothing to hold on to. Do you hear what I'm saying? This is why promises are so important. But there's a problem. And the problem is, is that promises are a pain. Promises constrict. Promises constrain. You know, when Ruth makes a promise to Naomi, I mean, it's very lovely and poetic and beautiful, but it's also hard. She shuts down all possibilities for her life back in Moab. By making, saying yes to one person, she's saying no to a lot of other things. By me saying yes to Sarah, I say no to everybody else. By you saying yes to a friend or yes to a job or yes to a church, being the nature that you are as a limited human being, you are necessarily shutting down options and shutting down opportunities in all these other places. And that, in our world at least, is considered suffocating. You know, our world worships personal freedom. Keep your options open. We don't want anything to limit us and limit our freedom and limit the possibilities that lie before us in our future. Just a couple of examples that I think are interesting if you look at stats over the last 30 years. On the one hand, there's been a huge rise in cohabitation. So now over 75% of couples that get married now live together before they got married. Now, I'm just making an observation about this that at the root of this, I think, is a fear of promises, a fear of making a commitment to someone that might shut down and limit your life. On the other hand, the last 30 years, as there's been an increase in cohabitation, there's been a decrease in church membership. You know, the idea of joining a church is absurd and draconian, right? Why would I do that? I could be a free agent and just listen to podcasts every week, right? And yet, and yet this weekend, 20, we walked with 20 people who prepared to join our church as covenant partners, and next Sunday, they're going to stand up here and make promises. I mean, who does that? How limiting, how suffocating. <laughs> is it true? Does making promises of commitment limit our freedom? Let me give it to you straight. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. But on another level, a much greater level, making promises grows our freedom. Just as an athlete voluntarily restricts her freedom through discipline and training in order to secure the greater freedom of excelling in a sport, so we voluntarily choose to limit ourselves through our promises so that we could gain the greater freedom of knowing, trusting, permanent, joy-filled relationships. You give up a certain measure of freedom to gain the greater freedom of love and joy. Lewis Smead said it like this, again, back to his article. He said, when we make a promise, we take it on ourselves to create a future uh, with someone else, no matter what fate may have in store. And that is ultimate freedom. He says, when I make a promise, I bear witness that my future with you, listen to this, is not determined by what I was dealt out of my family's genetic deck. When I make a promise, I testify that I'm not routed along by some itinerary of the psych psychic conditioning visit on me by my wacky parents. You know, when I make a promise, I show I'm not fated. I'm not determined. I rise above all the conditioning that limits me. A German shepherd cannot make a promise. A potted plant cannot make a promise. Your iPhone cannot make a promise. Only a person can make a promise. And when a person does, he or she is most free. You see what he's saying? He's saying, if, we, if you think that making a commitment or a promise to someone will somehow limit and lose your freedom, 
Think about this. If you don't live according to promises, you are a slave to your emotions. You're a slave to your circumstances. You're a slave to fears and impulses and emotional whims. You're not free. If you, if you try to live your life not according to your promises, but according to your current experience and emotion, you're not free. You're just chained to the vicissitudes of changing reality. You are trapped in the contradictions and equivocalities of the human heart. That's what you are. I remember sitting down with a man who was leaving his wife for another woman after a couple of decade or two of marriage. And he said to me, you know, I know this is really, really painful, but I just, I just don't have feelings for her anymore. In fact, I haven't had feelings for her for years. And I am so tired of living a divided life. You know, I need to be true to myself. I need to be authentic. I need to be true to myself and no longer live this divided life. Now, do you know what I said to him? I actually don't remember what I said to him. I, in, my, in my imagination, I would have said this to him. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm sure I botched it at the time. But what I, what I would have said is this. What spouse has not felt that? What spouse? Is there any spouse in this room? Is there any spouse in the world that has not had days and months and seasons and even long stretches of time in which your own emotional internal reality does not match the promise that you made? Is there any spouse? Is there anyone in here who has ever made a promise in which you have not experienced that division between the will and the emotions? And yet the message of our culture is that to be authentic, to be the authentic person, your choices should always be aligned with your emotions. But listen, feelings are great. I love feelings. I got a lot of them. Feelings are great. They're a part of who you are, but they are also highly unpredictable. They are like flickering flames that rise and fall with every new condition. The modern quest to align your will with your emotions will not make you whole. It will only make you splintered. Splintered as you chase after the equivocalities of the human heart and emotions. Does that make sense? I got to confess something to you. I love the Disney movie Frozen. I love it. I think it, is a, I think it is a profound film of artistic greatness. And those of you who do not believe me, you are ignorant. Uh, <laughs> uh, listen, I sometimes watch this movie without my kids. Um, you, you, thought, you thought it was just this happy little, little frivolous film. It is not. It is profound. And in this movie, Elsa, Elsa represents the spirit of our age, self-expression, pursuit of authenticity, alignment of will with the emotions. She sings, let it go, you know, let it go. <laughs> Don't hold me back anymore, she says. And then later, later in the song, she says, no right, no wrongs, no rules for me, I'm free. <laughs> right, right? She is singing the anthem of our age, the power of self-expression, the freedom of finally stopping to live the divided life and embracing who I really am. She is singing the spirit of our age. And then you watch in the movie as her entire life begins to unravel. And she is trapped, literally trapped in the castle of her, of her, of her own desires. But then there's Anna. And Anna, this is why I always cry when I watch this movie. <laughs> it's two sisters. Anna says to Elsa, no, you will not be the ice queen. You know, you, you will not be this person who pursues your own 
emotional greatness and follows the whims of your experiences. I will not let you isolate yourself from me or community or family or for anyone else. You are not these things. Who you are is this. You are my sister. You're my sister. And I'm not going to stop at anything. I don't care how much ice you shoot at me. I don't care how much you rebuke me. I will stop at nothing until I get you back again, even if it means my own death. You belong to me. And so it is Anna who is free, not Elsa, who rescues her enslaved sister through love. That's the set. You see, you're all going to go home and watch Frozen this afternoon. <laughs> who are you? Who are you? Are you the sum total of whatever you're having to feel today? Are you the, the product of your genetic impulses? Are you the sum total of your genes? No. Who you are is your promises, the commitments that you have made to God, to others, to, to whoever it is in your life. Who you have said to the other person, I am the one who will be there. It is our promises, not our feelings, that make us free. Do you think Ruth had good feelings about slamming the door on her own future and walking into the unknown? Of course not. She is limiting her life. She's accepting constraints. She's taking on the suffering of a bitter woman, and yet she is totally free. Look at her. She is powerful. She is a force of nature. She is beautiful. She is the only free person at this point in this story. She's a slave to none. She is determining a future for herself. I am the one who will be there. So yes, the problem with promise making is that it does limit your life. It shuts down options. It brings constraints. But the fruit of those promises is not that you become less of yourself, but more. Not that you lose your freedom, but that you gain your life and you gain the beauty of trusting permanent relationships. We are fully ourselves, not when we feel good and have everything we want. We are fully ourselves when we learn how to love. Love God, love each other. Limitations for the sake of love leads to life. Limitations for the sake of love leads to life. In the words of the great modern prophet, Marcus Munford, Munford and Sons, great man. He says, love, it will not betray you, dismay you, or enslave you. It will set you free, more like the man you were made to be. Limitations for the sake of love leads to life. One last thing, though. We need some power for this. Because let's be honest, promise keeping, especially as Mary kind of suggested earlier, to broken, unhealthy, sometimes uh, even resentful people can be really hard. And, uh, and we see that happening to Ruth here. I mean, look at Ruth. She makes this amazing promise to her mother-in-law. And what does Naomi do in return? Well, verse 18, it says, this is actually a pretty bad translation. It says in this translation, she stopped urging her. But literally in Hebrew, it says, Naomi fell silent. And the tenor of that phrase is displeasure, ambivalence. Not sure why she's unhappy that Ruth is committed to go with her. Maybe because she's embarrassed about bringing a foreign woman back to Bethlehem. Maybe because she doesn't want to be burdened by this person and pay for her food or whatever it may be, but whatever it is, she's not happy. And later you see in verse 21, I mean, check this out. This is just, this just stings. She, she comes into her hometown. The women come out to meet her. 
They say, oh, are, who are you? How, you know, how are you? How's it been? And here is Naomi standing right in front of these women with her daughter-in-law standing right next to her who has just left everything, abandoned all, is grieving herself, herself being a widow. And she says, I went away full. The Lord brought me back empty. I got nothing and no one. And Ruth's like, uh, what about me? But Naomi can't see her. She is blind. Her suffering has blinded her to the gift that, that Ruth is and to what all that Ruth has lost and given to make a promise to her. And that's what happens sometimes. Promise keeping is costly. Oftentimes you make a commitment to someone and that love is not reciprocated. And, and some of you know what I'm talking about because I know your stories and I know that you've had to endure this. Some of you know what it's like to commit to a child and to give everything to that child and for that child only to respond uh, with ingratitude or even to take advantage of your kindness. Some of you know what it's like to commit to a friend or a parent or a spouse and to give and give and give and to receive only uh, resentment and even criticism back again and again and again. Some of you know what it's like to have to forgive someone close to you, maybe for the thousandth time, and that person will never know or have any comprehension of the pain that you have chosen to endure for them. See, love can be costly. This kind of love can actually be kind of unbearable at times. And, and, I, and I want you to understand, I am not talking about the acceptance of abuse. Sometimes this kind of promise-keeping love means that you have to call the police. Uh, it means that you have to push somebody into treatment. But even that is terribly costly. A friend of mine told me about, he's a teacher in a public school, and he told me that he stood last week in a room with a boy and his father as they had to commit the boy to institutionalization. And the boy screamed, his father, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. And all the father could do is sit there with tears running his, down his face, repeating the phrase, I love you, son. And that is painful. That is lonely. Promise-keeping love is some of the loneliest kind of love because oftentimes it goes unrewarded. You don't get a trophy for it. And nobody ever sees your pain. And that's what happened to Ruth. She walks into Bethlehem without any trophies, without any reward, not even her own mother-in-law appreciating that she's there, completely alone, and yet, with the most incredible act of courage, she perseveres. How? How does she do it? Where does she get the power to keep her promise despite the unreciprocated love? Well, look at verse 16. She says this, "'Your people will be my people.'" Your God will be my God. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. This is very striking. Ruth is clearly making a decision for Naomi, but she is making a bigger decision for God. Somehow, in the last 10 years, perhaps marrying into an Israelite family, Naomi, I mean Ruth, has come to know Yahweh. And this is her moment of conversion where she is facing a road between idols and the living God, and she renounces all of her idolatrous past. She renounces the gods of Moab, and she, cling, she clings to Yahweh, the God that she knows is true, and ultimately is not her love for Naomi, but her faith in the God that is real, that is for her. That's what keeps her going. That's what makes her brave. Not her promise to Naomi, but God's own promise to her that it gives her the power to endure 
in love. Let me, let me say it this way, friends, and I really hope that you'll hear me on this. When you make a promise to another person and you try to keep it, you cannot rely on that person's love to keep you going. Can I say that again? This is serious uh, counseling work in Boundaries 101, okay? Do you hear me on this? When you make a promise to another person and you seek to keep it, you cannot rely on that person's love to keep you going. Your energy, your energy for love, it has to come from God, not the person that you're trying to love. Can you imagine trying to love an aging parent uh, and your energy for that love comes from the gratitude and the affection that you receive from that parent? Well, what happens is that gratitude dissipates. What happens is that person begins to, to lose their mental and physical capacities? What happens as there's no reciprocity given but only criticism? What, what, what do you have left in your tank? You know, what happens if you give and give and give yourself to a marriage that is cold, thinking that by giving and keeping your promise and seeking to love your spouse faithfully in that way, instead of that spouse turning around and transforming, they only seem to, to become uh, static and stale in their coldness as it, it, with no reciprocity back towards you. If you are relying on the, their affection and their love to fuel your own love for them, you're done. You're done. There'll be nothing in your tank. And this is why the, the only way you can endure the cost of love is by being rooted in the love of God for you. The harder things get, the more vital this is when you get nothing back, nothing's reciprocated. In every relationship you'll ever be in, there will be seasons that are like this. You might be in one now. The only way is to draw on the power of God who loves you because God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. He says in Deuteronomy, know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his promise of love. Did you hear that? Keeping his promise of love to a thousand generations. The whole story of the Bible is about a God who keeps his promise of love, who keeps his promise of love. He makes the promise to his people in the garden. He affirms that promise to Abraham. He pursues his people in the midst of that promise, even as they rebel against him again and again. He fulfills that promise by coming among us in the person of Jesus Christ. He lives for us. He dies for us. He rises for us, all to guarantee the promise that he will be always with us. And then he makes a promise that he will come again for us and make all things new. In all of this, God does all of this at infinite personal cost to himself taking the suffering and the pain and the unreciprocated love of his people upon himself. He does all of this so that he can fulfill that age-old word, I am the God who will be with you. I am the God who will be with you no matter what you do, no matter what happens, no matter what people do to you, no matter if you turn away, no matter how far you run, I am the God who will be with you. You can count on nothing else in this world. Nothing is stable, and yet God says, I am the God who will be with you. Like Ruth to Naomi, he says, nothing can separate you from me. Not death, not hell, not angels, nor demons, not height, not death. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. He is the promise-making, promise keeping God. Do you hear me, friends? And that is the only promise that will keep you going. The only power that can fuel our promises is the energy that flows from the love of God for you. And when you're living in that love, you can do pretty remarkable things. You know, you can love your spouse. You get, try to do something nice. Spouse returns a bitter word. In your flesh, you want to do the silent treatment. You want to go low. But Hesed says, no, I'm not 
getting my power from that person's love for me. I'm getting the love right from here. And so what do you do? You keep persevering. With this kind of love, you can forgive for the thousand and first time. With this kind of love, you can keep going when you want to throw in the towel. With this kind of love, you can face anything because you are not trapped by your feelings. You are not carried around by the emotional whims of your heart, and you are not dependent on the other person's response. And so you can do anything. You can face any certainty, any difficulty. You can face any, any unreciprocated love. You can deal with any unmet affection. Why? Because you've got the love supreme. And that tank never drains. That tank never drains. It is always brimming up like a well deep within the soul. So I want you right now to think about the hardest person to love in your life. Think about that person. They might be in this room. Might be in the pulpit. <laughs> they might be right next to you. If they are, please don't make any indication. <laughs> but I just want you to think about that. It might be a spouse, a friend, a brother, a sister, a boss, a colleague, a child, a church, a school, an institution that you're a part of. Who is it that is the hardest person to love right now in your life? Where are you struggling to maintain the promise? I want you to think about this. Think about that person. Imagine them in your mind. And ask two questions. First, what do you think God is calling you to do today for that person? What would it mean to maintain hesed love and to take on the costly promises of love for that person? And the second thing I want you to think about is this, is that how are you in relationship to that person going to more fully rely, not on their love, but on the promise and the love of God for you? How are you going to draw energy this week from the love of God? Let's pray. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. We thank you, Father, that you are the promise-making, promise-keeping God, and that you have proven that through Jesus, his death and his resurrection for us. Lord, we, we, we are held together by your promise. When our world is shaking, heaven stands. When our hearts are breaking, we leave not your hands. Help us to... Remain there in the center of your promise this week and give us power that we might love those you called us to love. We pray in Jesus' name.